Welcome back to the Thunder Buddies Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Martin, and I am joined by a very special guest, a legend in Oklahoma sports media, Barry Trammell. Barry, how are you doing today? Pretty good, Michael. Pretty good. Awesome. Well, there's a lot going on. I know there's been a lot of new arena talk. What was your initial reaction when you first heard about a lot of the the rumblings about that? Well, I mean, when I whenever this was, when when David Holt first brought it up, which was Sometime last year, I think he dropped it in a state of the st- a state of the city address a year ago. Just the idea that it's you know something we have to start thinking about. It was very striking and startling. I think wait, 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 it's not time to build a new arena. But if you start doing the math, all of a sudden you realize that at the time, the uh, the Paycom Center was 21 years old. Now it's 22 years old. You realize the original MAPS vote to build PACOM was 30 years ago. You know that it takes several years to get the financing, to get the vote, get the support, to get the plans, to get the, uh, you know, the, uh, the construction started, to get it completed. Even if everything is fantastic, it's going to be five, six, seven years away. So you're looking at an arena that's going to be pushing 30 years. And the truth is, that's close to the lifespan of most professional sports uh, venues. The ballpark in Arlington, one of the best, one of the coolest venues I've ever been in. It lasted what? 2094. Uh, it lasted 25 years. So um, the other thing to remember is the Paycom Center was built bare bones. It was not a plush arena. It's not an opulent arena. In many ways, it was uh, just sort of a, uh, a by the numbers, set it up as fast as you can arena with no no frills, uh, no <laughs> extras. Um, I would rank it probably, it ranks 29th or 30th among NBA arena, arenas. Um, it served Oklahoma City well. It was built for $80 million. They've put another $100 million into it over the last 20 years. Uh, so $180 million for what is now a 21-year-old arena, 22-year-old arena. Oklahoma City's gotten its money's worth, no doubt about it. Yeah, but you... there comes a time when it, you know, it's outlived its usefulness. And um, you know, I'd say Oklahoma City probably uh, is, is correct in, in looking to, to fund a new one. Yeah, you mentioned it. It was built just kind of just for various sports, concerts, and a bunch of things, just kind of generally built. Um, what are all the name changes it's gone through? Because I remember at first it was the Ford Center, then it became the Chesapeake Energy it, Arena. It, and had three, just, it, it had the three, Ford Center and Chesapeake Energy Arena, and now Paycom Center. Um, you know, the, the thing to remember about, about this building is it was not built for basketball. It was actually built more for hockey specifications. It's perfectly fine, you know, the layout of the court and all that. It all works, but it could be a lot better. Um, here's how sort of antiquated the building is. If you go in the press room, uh, which is not a huge press room, but it's adequate sized, there is a room where there used to be. I think uh, they may have cut it off now. But there was a room off the press room that was a smaller room. You know what that room was? It was a dark room. 
You even, Michael, do you even know what a dark room is? I feel like when that's for dark room. My brain goes to developing photos would be it. Am I, am I right about that's that? It. Oh, there we go. <laughs> that's it. A dark room is where you develop photos. And that's how old the pay comes. Think about that. This is a place that actually was built with the idea that photographers were going to go shoot the game, then run in there and get into a, into a, a dark room and develop their pictures with the chemicals and the water and the film and the, you know, I mean, that's, uh, that's how antiquated the place sort of is. And they've done a nice job. Like I said, it's got all kinds of cool things going on right now, but it's not at all a, a, uh, a modern arena in terms of the NBA standard. So it's, a uh, you know, it's time for another one. The question really to me is not, uh, what Oklahoma city, uh, does, do they, do they build another one? It's what kind of arena do they build? Do they build a palace or do they build another bare bones arena? That's just good enough to, you know, get the thunder by for another 20 years. I think you definitely want to go all out with this if you're going to have to do it every 30 years to at least build it a little bit bigger where maybe you can stretch out to 40 or something like that. But um, as someone who's been to a lot of NBA arenas, you mentioned it's like among like the bottom tier. What do you think it's missing just compared to those other ones that you've been to? Well, the biggest one is um, space, um, particularly in the guts of the arena. Um, The, the upper concourses or the, the main concourses, uh, the um, the size there. And what we're really talking about is uh, revenue generating opportunities. Um, you know, the, uh, the uh, high dollar seats come with all kinds of amenities, whether it's restaurants, clubs, you know, lounges, those kinds of things. Thunder's got a little bit of that, some of that, but not nearly what. A place like, say, American Airlines Center has or nothing like what, you know, the new places will have have in Milwaukee, Sacramento. We'll have at the Clippers. So um, those kinds of things. It's also not a draw, a jaw dropping experience to walk into the Paycom Center. You're too you're not only too young to have experienced this. You're too young to have even seen it in its in its uh, in its uh, twilight, but the Marriott opened in 1972 and, you know, the, the Marriott was Oklahoma city's arena from 1972 to 2001. And it was still used as an arena, played hockey there. Some had some basketball there, still had some concerts, mostly was used as a, um, as a, uh, you know, convention space in its last I don't know, 10, 10 years or so. In recent years, they've converted the Myriad into Prairie Surf Studio, a soundstage for films and things. Um, it's there a block north of the Paycom Center. But in 1972, when the Myriad opened, the Myriad, uh, up until then, the, the, the basketball, the big concert basketball venue in Oklahoma City was State Fair Arena, which opened in 1965. And still exists, still play state basketball tournament there. But it was not uh, all that nice. Still isn't. It was a little bit of a, it was a little bit of a, a barn type atmosphere. It was perfectly fine. 
Um, but it was nothing at all. Nothing, nothing said special about it. But then in 1972, Oklahoma City opens the Myriad. And when you walked into the Myriad in 1972, it was a stunning experience because it was so opulent. It was so beautiful. It was ahead of its time. It had this magic name, the Myriad. It had this, uh, this grand entrance with these uh, chandeliers and, and all kinds of cool decor and elevators taking you everywhere. And the seats seemed really plush. In effect, compared to a modern arena, it wasn't anything special. But for the time, it was extra special. And Oklahomans and Oklahoma Cityans, when they walked into the Myriad, it was like a sense of pride. Look what we've got. This is really in our city. It was just an unbelievable thing to behold. And that was not the case 30 years later when Paycom or when Ford Center opened. It's just an arena. It was cool that we had an arena. A few years later, we had an NBA team playing in it. So it was really a cool place to be. But there was really nothing special about the building itself. And I do think this is an opportunity for Oklahoma City to return to that sense of pride that I felt as an 11-year-old in 1972 and a lot of people felt when they walked into the Myriad for the first time. Yeah, I mean, Devon Tower is one of the few things in the skyline that kind of stands out. I don't think this arena is going to be way up there, like high in the sky, but it could be something nice to add to the city as just like another architectural thing, like you mentioned with the Myriad, because the Ford Center, Paycom Center is not super stunning. It's just kind of the default shape of an arena, the kind of the bowl square shape. So hopefully something cool happens. But the Thunder, a lot of people um, are talking about voting for this. And luckily, not well, luckily, but it's very nice that the Thunder ownership is contributing to this new arena because it's been more of a recent thing that that's happened for NBA teams. But history usually doesn't look that way. Yeah, you know, and I I think it's uh, it's multifaceted. One, it's a good PR move if you want to know if you want you know if if you want if the Thunder wants Oklahoma City uh, citizens to support this endeavor. It's a lot easier going down if you know. Hey, these guys are ponying or uh, 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 ponying up a bunch of their own money. Now we don't have any price tag. We don't know what they're going to give. We, you know, I don't know if they're going to give five million or a hundred million. I don't know. But if they do give a substantial amount, hundred million dollars, let's say for a seven hundred million dollar project, well, that's substantial. That's that's putting your money where your mouth is, and I do think it would help invigorate uh, people to support the, the measure, uh, which we all expect it to be another MAPS vote. And the thing, of course, is this. Um, Oklahoma City has never failed on one of these MAPS votes. We've had four, I think it is. And um, they've all really invigorated the city in a variety of ways. We know all, all the ways that, that that's happened. And in the last 30, 40 years, Oklahoma City's been transformed. You don't remember this. You're too young. But Oklahoma City once was a wasteland downtown. No one was around after 5 o'clock. There was one downtown hotel. It was not nice, all that nice. 
There was no conventions. There was no entertainment district. There wasn't anything going on in downtown Oklahoma City. And look what the city has done over the last 30 years. Uh, transformed itself with Bricktown, transformed itself with Midtown and the Plaza. You know, all the cool kids, all the people your age, they want to live at, you know, down at uh, uh, 16th and Classen or whatever the whatever the intersections might be. So um, that's a that's a sea change in Oklahoma City. And it makes for a vibrant city. And it's it's a stark and, and stirring transformation. And I expect uh, the maps vote to pass whenever it comes because Oklahoma City has this momentum going, very solid momentum in supporting these kinds of things. But, uh, but you do have to go and do it. It's not automatic. That's why the mayor's beating the bushes. That's why you'll see the civic leaders getting out and urging people to vote. That's why you'll see an ad campaign. You'll see a media blitz. Um, you'll see this trotted out. There will always be an anti-tax crowd. They are always with us. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's very difficult to lose for Oklahoma City now because they've got so much data, so much evidence to show what this has done for Oklahoma City. Uh, but you still need to, to beat the bushes and get people out to vote. Definitely. And that leads me to the next uh, thing I wanted to talk to you about, and that is teams in the NBA that have relocated in the history of the league. There's been a lot of relocations. These ones I found that actually had reasons. 1948 to 1957, the Fort Wayne Pistons moved to Detroit because uh, Fort Wayne was too small of a city. Rochester Royals, after nine seasons, relocated to Cincinnati as the Cincinnati Royals um, due to a lack of profitability in Rochester. After 12 seasons, the Minneapolis Lakers relocated to Los Angeles to become the Los Angeles Lakers after poor attendance issues. And then there's a lot of these where it's just the Philadelphia Warriors relocate to San Francisco due to the ownership uh, being sold or the team being showed to an uh, ownership group in San Francisco. This one um, threw me off here. The Kansas City slash Omaha Kings became the Kansas City Kings after three seasons because they just wanted to host all the games in Kansas City, all the home games. Did they split those back then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And th this is that was the Cincinnati Royals. The, you mentioned the Rochester Royals moved to Cincinnati. Then Cincinnati Royals moved to Kansas City, but farmed out a good chunk of their games to Omaha and even billed themselves as the Kansas City Omaha Kings. Uh, you said three years. I, I couldn't remember. That, that's, that sounds right. And they had some star power. Tiny Archibald played for that team. And Sam Lacey. They had a pretty good team. Um, that was in the days before arenas mattered very much. And just flat out ticket sales were, you know, could you get people to come out? That was really, the TV packages were not big. So uh, team goes to Kansas City and thinks, you know what? We won't ask the people of Kansas City to support 41 games a year we'll go 15 or 20 games whatever it was in omaha play the rest in kansas city omaha's three hours up the road interstate 29 and uh eventually you know they realized that's really not feasible so here came uh they went back to kansas city for another i don't know 10 years or so and then they relocated to sacramento so they're one of those they've moved three times that franchise has moved three times not even counting Omaha, moved to Cincinnati, Kansas City, and Sacramento. Count Omaha, they've been in four cities since founding. Um, but yeah, that's uh, 
you know, the, the, the NBA has had more franchise movement, I think, than the other two major, or if you want to count hockey, all three. The NBA's had more movement um, than anyone else. You know, the Washington Wizards started out in Chicago as the Zephyrs, I think. The Chicago Zephyrs in the early 60s moved to Washington. Um, and then here came the Chicago Bulls to replace them. But uh, Syracuse Nationals moved to Philadelphia to be the 76ers after the Warriors moved to San Francisco. Um, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the Spurs in the old ABA started out as the Dallas Chaparrales, moved to San Antonio. The Houston Rockets started in San Diego, played a year or two in San Diego. The Atlanta Hawks started in um, – I think they've been in different – I think they might have started in the uh, Quad Cities. Moline, Illinois, maybe, is their home base. And then went to St. Louis, now Atlanta. Uh, you know about the Pelicans. Uh, started in Charlotte as the Hornets. The Jazz started in New Orleans as the Jazz. Uh, I mean, the, the Utah Jazz started in New Orleans. So this Thunder obviously started in Seattle. Uh, in recent years, recent decades, this movement has been fueled by uh, desire for a better arena. In Seattle, the Sonics couldn't get a new arena built. You know, Clay Bennett buys the team, uh, makes a... Uh, Makes a pitch, says, here, I'm giving you a year to come up with a plan, and I'll help you. We'll come up with a plan. And then uh, all bets are off, and no plan developed, and here we are in, in Oklahoma City with the Thunder. So uh, the arena is paramount to the viability of a, of a market, especially if you're not a major market. You know, the Knicks are not leaving New York. The Lakers are not leaving Los Angeles. That's not going to happen. but you know, the, uh, the, the Sonics could leave Seattle. And, um, you know, the, the, the Hawks uh, could leave Atlanta if, if you know, the, the arena thing would, wouldn't work out. The Kings would have left Sacramento without that new arena. Um, so that's just sort of the way it, it, it is. It's a fact of life. If you don't like it, your alternative is, is just, get out of the NBA business. And I'm not saying you have to be in the NBA business. I'm just saying if you want a team, you've got to get in the big building business of arenas. Exactly. Vancouver Grizzlies, after six seasons, relocate to Memphis due to financial problems caused by low attendance and the weak value of the Canadian dollar, it said. You mentioned the Hornets to New Orleans. This one made me laugh because it said it was they were relocated due to lack of profitability, declining attendance, and declining popularity of owner George Shin. Uh, that's Charlotte to New Orleans. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, George Shin, uh, of course, Oklahoma Cityans know him well. Brought the Hornets here during the hurricane. Yeah, he was a hero when he brought the NBA to Charlotte, but he uh, he did a few things that got him on the wrong side. Uh, Charlotte people turned against him, and uh, there was most teams, most cities are sad when they lose their NBA franchise. But Charlotte was not sad to see George Shin go. And they're still waiting course, for an NBA franchise to return for because this Hornets <laughs> team is not good. <laughs> Eventually, um, 
you know, eventually the NBA took the uh, took the franchise away from George Shin, uh, sort of uh, basically just uh, overpowered him and you know paid him a nominal fee, uh, paid him well for it. But um, yeah, George, I love George personally, but he was not a good owner. And then the New Jersey Nets are the most recent one. After 35 years, they relocated to Brooklyn after former Nets owner Bruce Ratner bought the team with the intention to move them to Brooklyn and were finally relocated in 2012. I guess you could also say the Warriors moving from Oakland to San Francisco. But this exercise is more just to say, don't play with fire if you're one of the people thinking about voting and thinking that, you know, well, this is going to get done. I don't need to vote. If the Thunder are important to you or your local business or just having them in the Oklahoma City economy, you should definitely go out there and get voting whenever this does come through and it's time to vote. Yeah, now I don't, I'm not sitting here saying the Thunder will leave if they don't get a new arena. Uh, the, the ownership construction, the model set up when the Thunder arrived 15 years ago, the, uh, the, uh, Ownership model is set up to make it very difficult for this franchise to leave. Uh, four primary partners own 19% each, um, so you'd have to get you'd have to get uh, wangle three of those four shares under one control for somebody to say we're leaving. And uh, considering it's all made up of Oklahomans. That's not going to be easy. So I don't anticipate the Thunder leaving, even if the would vote would fail. That's not what this is about. This is about two things. It's making the Thunder as prosperous as possible, able to, to uh, spend the way they've spent, and they spend a lot of money. That, you know, that Carmelo Anthony team remains, you know, unbelievable salary. Uh, I forgot what the, what the payroll, t- counting the luxury tax, I don't know. They were, 180 million or something. It was just nuts how much Oklahoma City was spending in salary. Um, and they're prepared to do that again. They've been preparing for when for when uh, Santa Clara Williams and Chet Holmgren and Josh Giddy and this crowd gets up into the into the second contract area that SGA is in now. They've got to have revenue streams to make all that work. So it's it's about that. And then it's also about, I think, it's just civic pride, having having something special in town that even invigorates downtown even more so than what we've seen. Yeah, ownership's been saving money the last few years. The team hasn't been very good, and they've just left some roster spots open and just kind of gained the salary back. So it'll be time again, like you mentioned, with that Carmelo team for ownership to pay up again in the luxury tax once the team is good. But you mentioned Chet Holmgren. I know you recently wrote for the Oklahoman about Chet and trying to avoid comparisons to Victor Wembanyama, I just wanted to give you the stage to talk about that. We can discuss it. Yeah. You know, I got thinking about old Chet. And, um, this is a guy that, um, misfortune, bad luck, whatever you want to call it, had the, uh, had the Liz Frank injury that makes him miss his, his rookie year last year. And now all of a sudden, so it's a redo a year later, he is going to start his rookie year. And lo and behold, here's Chet Holmgren 4.0, Victor Wimbanyama, launching his career. And um, if Chet had got to play last year, we could have seen what we had, but he also could have made a name for himself, got his footing, sort of got off the starting gate, got down the road toward his NBA career. Now, though, he's he's in the heat with Victor Wimbanyama. 
There's going to be constant comparisons. Both are over seven foot. Both are considered elite rim protectors. Both are uh, considered incredibly skilled with the ball, shooting, those kinds of things, uh, for their size. And Chet has the misfortune of having to take off on this race right alongside Victor Wimbanyama. If Victor is everything everybody says he's going to be, well, that's going to be a bad comparison for Chet Holmgren. Um, I don't know if it'll turn out that way. We'll see. But I just, I urged media, we do it too, and I urge fans, let's tread lightly on the Holmgren-Victor Wimbanyama comparisons. Let's just let Chet be Chet. And if Chet is a, if he is a shot-blocking fiend who can make outside shots and grab some rebounds, that's a home run for the Thunder. Who cares how he compares to Victor Wimbanyama? If he's better than Victor Wimbanyana, great. If he's not, it doesn't matter. The Thunder needs him to be Chet Holmgren. They need him to be the best version of Chet Holmgren that he can be. And if he is, the comparisons to Wimbanyama don't matter. So just let's just make it easier on the guy and not, not just sort of link arms with him and Wimbanyama since they are now going to launch their rookie careers at the same time. Let's just give him a little bit of a little bit of space to become his own man. I guess is is the way. Who knows if that's the kind of thing that would bother Holmgren? I don't know. But no reason to risk. No reason to risk. These things have a way of working themselves out. Where if these guys are two elite players, we're going to see them play in the playoffs many times over the next few years. So we don't have to get into a lot of speculation of comparing them. We'll we'll see them against each other, but. Like you mentioned, if Victor is who a lot of people think he could be as like a generational superstar, super impact guy, and Chet's just an all-star, which is, sounds like an understatement, it shouldn't be a big disappointment. What really comes down to is fans should be focused on the wins and losses between the two teams. But yeah, Victor is going to have every camera pointed at him. Chet will have a little bit of that, but um, it's going to be interesting to see the fans' expectations for this season, but hopefully they can just enjoy Chet without comparing him to the other guy um, south of the border in Texas. Yeah. And you're right. It, you know, on draft night, when the Thunder came up 12, which meant not in the high lottery, my immediate thought was, all right, what I'm hoping for now is that Victor Wimbanyama goes to the East. I wanted him to go to the East. Didn't get my wish. You can't down to Charlotte and San Antonio for the last two. Spurs win the lottery. That means Victor is likely to see Oklahoma City a bunch in his career, or probably in the playoffs at some point. Um, just going to have to live with that. But, but what, what you do is um, you embrace the rivalry. You get all fired up. But just remember, the Thunder does not need Chad Holmgren to be Victor Wimbanyama. The Spurs need Victor to be Victor. There's not any question. But the Thunder is much better set up going forward with uh, the roster as it is right now. So this is, they don't need, if Chad Holmgren, you mentioned all-star. If he's an all-star, that's fantastic. That's unbelievably, uh, an unbelievable turn for the Thunder. That's what, that's really what they need. I threw this out to Joe, and I mentioned that it's going to be easier on Chet this year because they have J-Dub and Giddy and Shea, so he can slide into like a fourth option. And I also mentioned this, as I said, 
this is optimistic for me, but if you just take away the name and you just have the, the accomplishments, I think it looks like a bigger deal. But a Blake Griffin-like career for Chet, I think, would be a home run. A guy who was oh third oh. third in MVP, two-time, second-team All-NBA, oh. three third-teams. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. No kid Sign me up for that right now. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, if it, hey, listen. If Chet Holmgren has a Blake Griffin career, the next decade's going to be a lot of fun in this here town. Mm-hmm. I can tell you that. It's going to be a lot of fun. No doubt about it. I think some people just get caught up too much in late career Blake and forget about how good he is. But that that's a topic for another day, because if Chet can be that guy and I don't even think that's like super unrealistic, you know, I think that's probably a high outcome, but it's not something where it's like everything would have to go exactly perfect. But for Chet, the Victor Wembanyama comparisons aren't necessarily fair yet. Let's see them both play in the NBA. But are there any guys active or uh, in the past who remind you of Chet at all? It doesn't have to be a one-to-one comp, but just any parts of their game could be their attitude, physique, mentality, anything. I'm up with three in sort of a declining sort of a declining stage. And one's pretty obvious. Uh, and that's uh, Chris Tapps Porzingis. Um, very tall. Porzingis is actually more like Wimbenyama than Holmgren. I think 7'3 versus 7'1. Very thin, um, but probably better off on the perimeter. You know, better, really good ball skills. Porzingis is a very good outside shooter. Um, Holmgren, in theory, will be. But long arms and pretty good instincts on Porzingis. Is a Porzingis a very good shot blocker, rim protector? Proje- uh, Holmgren is projected to be even better. Whether he will be or not, I don't know. But um, that's the one that comes straight to mind. Um, we think, and this is another classic example of of what we're doing here. But uh, um, I would say Porzingis is not appreciated enough for being a good ball player. They think he should be a superstar. He hasn't been, probably won't be. But he's a really good ball player. I mean, the Celtics just traded Marcus Smart for him. So they think he's something special because Marcus Smart was the heart and soul of the Boston squad. But um, if he can, if Holmgren can be a a poor Zingus, you know, I, I think you'd probably wouldn't buy on that you'd probably say let it roll and see if he's better than taking it right now but Porzingis is a good player that's that's the most likely comp that I came up with um and a lot of that of course is just how tall they are and those kinds of things um another one I thought of and this is what the one thing that makes Holmgren so special is he is so unique, mm-hmm. right? A seven-footer who is an elite rim protector, a difference-making rim protector, you know, perhaps a shot blocker of of uh, of renown, historic shot blocker. How many of those guys have been good three-point shooters? Not very many yeah. is the answer. Not very many. 
So it's hard to find comps. It's hard to find comparisons. This guy was not necessarily an elite three-point shooter because he he could bang around inside much more than I see Holmgren doing, but he's very skilled. And that's Paul Gasol. We forget about Paul Gasol, just how good he was. Fundamentally, he was fantastic. He's uh, incredibly skilled with the ball, seven foot tall. And oh yeah, I, I forgot where he. But he's he's a he was a very good shot blocker. I think Gasol. I had it right here in NBA history. Oh shoot, I'm not gonna find it very easy. But he's one of the top fifty shot blockers of all time, and probably ahead of that if I was guessing. Twenty uh, third. He's twenty third on the all time list shot blocker. So those are the two I came up with. I mean, if we discussed it more, I might come up with somebody else, but. And if and let me say this, if Chad Holmgren's as good as Paul Gasol, yeah, <laughs> I like that. I like that. I got a couple for you. Early Porzingis, hey. like you were talking about, before he tore his ACL in his first three seasons, he was averaging 18 points per game, two blocks, seven rebounds, 1.3 assists per game on 44, 36, 80 shooting splits. People forget how good he was. And then the obvious one of a guy who was drafted the year before Chet, Evan Mobley. I think they're going to have pretty similar yeah. roles. Yeah, uh, that is a good one. Um, Mobley clearly has shown that he's an elite shot blocker, or going to be. Um, his shooting has not been great so far, but he certainly looks like looks the part. And the Thunder loves him. You know, if you remember mm-hmm. the devil of the time trying to move up to take him back in whatever year that was, 21 draft, I guess. Yeah, 21 draft. So, yeah, that's a good one. I like that. I like that. And I've got um, one more historical name. I think you'll like this one. Okay. Ralph Sampson in his first five seasons averaged 19 to mm-hmm. 10, 2.7 assists across thir- 316 games where he played 35 minutes a night. He had a knee injury. He rushed his rehab, and the injury was something he could never overcome to get back to his once elite level play where he made four all star teams and was the MVP in 84 85. But Ralph Sampson, another forgotten name. Ralph Sampson is one of those guys who was, he averaged 2.4 block shots as a rookie. So uh, people, he, people had such a high level for Sampson coming out of high school. They thought it, it, the hype for Sampson coming out of high school was very similar to the hype for Wim Benyama uh, going into the NBA. And he was good in college. He was great in college, but he probably wasn't the best player. Uh, he ended up coming out the same year as Akeem Olajuwon. Turns out he wasn't as good as Akeem Olajuwon. Guess what? Uh, the same can be said of every human that ever lived on the planet Earth, except for about five people. So uh, Akeem Olajuwon was something else. The thing about Samson, he also, he was a lot like the Wimbanyama, the Holmgren, the Gasol. He was really good with the ball. I mean, he was a, if he'd been six foot five, he'd have been a really good basketball player. Skilled, shoot, pass, all those things. Fundamentally sound. Um, he played when you didn't shoot threes. In his career, I don't know if he shot, well, he played whatever he played, nine years. And he shot 58 three pointers in his whole career, made 10. 
people didn't shoot threes back then. If he played today, he'd shoot a ton of threes. We don't know what kind of shooter he would have been. But it's a good one. I like I like that one about Ralph Simpson. That's a very good one. Very um, nice. Guys over seven foot who have the instincts to just routinely block shots and make three-pointers, that's a short list. That's a short list. Yeah, another guy. And it's not a one-to-one comp, but I think at the very floor for Chet, I would say he could be as good as Brooke Lopez is. Yeah, no, the thing about Lopez, yeah, that's a good one. If Holmgren is as good on defense, just mm-hmm. positionally, forget the shot block. If he can play just the positional defense that Brooke Lopez can, then and that'll be fantastic. And, of course, Lopez wasn't an outside guy at all until the last few years. He reinvented himself as a uh, – as an outside shooter, heck, his first um, in his first one, well, I got it right here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. His first eight seasons, he attempted thirty-five three-pointers. Um, in twenty eighteen nineteen, he attempted five hundred and twelve. So he remade himself. Chet doesn't have to remake himself. He's already got that skill and ability or desire to shoot the deep ball. Um, but yeah, that's another one. See, that's that's the potential of Holmgren. We're sitting here saying, you know, can he be Ralph Sampson? Maybe he can. Can he be Barack Lopez? Maybe he can. Maybe, you know, we, we seem to think Porzingis might be a disappointment. Probably like Porzingis, that's a really good player. So, that's, the upside is so high for Holmgren that if he doesn't reach it, it still doesn't mean he won't be a good player. He could be a very good player for the Thunder, even if he turns into a disappointing player. Yeah, even if he doesn't hit his ceiling, he could still be a really nice player. But going back to Chet and Victor, it seemingly feels like we're heading into a new generation of modern big men that are looking over uh, to take over the NBA. This feels like the first time, maybe you can correct me on this, since like the 90s with Shaq, Hakeem, Patrick Ewing, David Robinson, and others that the NBA and basketball have had this many high-level NBA big men. But I just wanted to get your take on that because it feels like the league, almost every single team has a guy who's under 30, 6'9 plus, who has like just a grab bag, a variety of just odd skills, including shot blocking and just extreme length. Yeah, and I mean, it's led by the two MVP candidates, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Embiid and, and Jokic. Um, I'd throw Giannis in there too. Giannis is uh that's one of the problems we have is in the modern age in, in the, you know in, in the old days before let's just say the 20th century if you were 6 11 7 foot there's not any question you were the center yeah um in the 21st century you don't know who you were there i mean Kevin Durant is taller than most 20th century centers um uh Rashid Wallace was sort of that way he's a He's the biggest surprising man I've ever seen. Couldn't believe how big he was in real life. He's a seven-foot power forward who could do all kinds of things. Um, And we see uh, the other thing about centers is they're getting smaller in some ways, too. Bam Adebayo is about six, eight, or nine. He's one 
he might be the third best center in the league. I'd have to look at it. But Draymond Green at 6'5", plays center for the Warriors a bunch. Uh, but you're right. Anthony Davis should be playing center. He doesn't always. But he's he's up there in talent. Um, so it is... It is a, uh, I don't, I think you used the word renaissance. That's probably a pretty good word for it. Everybody's got a center that, no, I shouldn't say everybody. Most teams have a center. If he's not a star, he does something fairly, uh, fairly singular at a very high level. You know, Stephen Adams is a difference making center just because of a lot of the little things he does, including offensive rebound, which is transformational to the Grizzlies. Clint Capella was, you know, he's maybe being phased out in Atlanta, but he could do all kinds of things with his rebounding and his defense for the Hawks. So, um, you know, not uh, there's still centers who don't, you know, don't really get it done. But there is, I think it's a good point. There are Brock, Brock Lopez, perfect mm-hmm. example. Perfect example. Does great work there. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that's not a bad. That's you know the longest the longest tenured New York Nick is Mitchell Robinson. Yeah, and he's you know he's turned into a really good player for the Knickerbockers. Um, the Celtics, Robert Williams, they sort of run Robert Williams and Al Horford in and out at center and doing different things. So yeah, it's it very well could be, and part of that part of that renaissance is just the extra skill that people come into the league with from a big man perspective. Some of them Europeans like Jokic, um, you know, he does things nobody's ever done in terms of passing. You know, Zach Lowe at ESPN, he's he's ready to end the debate on if if Jokic is the best passing big man of all time, and just ready to start talking about is he the best passer period of all time because it's so remarkable what he does. So these guys are incredibly skilled and they will, you know, they will impact the game in, in, in incredible ways. And it's good. You know, if the thunder didn't have Holmgren, they would be, you know, behind the, behind the curve, no doubt about it. And last year, as much as we all loved Arkansas Williams, they were behind the curve. I mean, they need a center who does something uh, of a shot-blocking nature uh, at a very high level. Yeah, of these guys who are thirty uh, below 30 and 6'9 or above, there are over 30 of these guys. Porzingis, Robert Williams, Nick Claxton, Mitchell Robinson, Joel Embiid, Jakob Pertl, Pascal Siakam, Evan Mobley, Jared Allen, Jalen Duran, Miles Turner, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Onyeka Kongwu, Mark Williams, Bam Adebayo. Paolo Bancaro, Franz Wagner, Wendell Carter Jr., Evixa Zubox, Anthony Davis just turned 30, DeAndre Ayton, uh, Demonis Sabonis, Derek Lively Jr., um, Jabari Smith Jr., Alperen Shingun, Jaron Jackson Jr., Victor Wembanyama, Nikola Jokic, Michael Porter Jr., Carl uh, Anthony Towns, Leonard Miller, Nas Reed, Laurie Markin, Walker Kessler, Taylor Hendricks, John Collins, and then finally the Thunder guys, Chet, Usman Jang, and also, just for fun, I included Poku and Jay Will. But these guys are just like flooding the league with we didn't huge e- yeah, we didn't guys. even mention Minnesota's two twin towers, Gobert and Towns, 
Oh, I got Towns go Bears over 30 is why I didn't mention. He's over 30. Well, but I mean, I'm talking just in terms yeah. of centers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I mean, I meant before you started reading the list, talking about, I mean, Towns is one of the most skilled big men in NBA history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sort of goofy and he plays no defense, so you can't get real serious about him. But offensively, he's a load and Gobert is a, uh, uh, you know, defensive monster. So some teams don't have just one, they get two. So maybe maybe it is time to reassess and say, hey, this is a, a golden age of NBA uh, big men. And if you know if the Sun, if the Thunder did not have uh, have uh, Holmgren, they'd have to be in the market to get one. And it'd be nice if he weighed sixty pounds heavier and could stand in there. And when Joel Embiid rammed into him, he wouldn't move. That'd be nice. But it's also nice that he's got these shot blocking instincts that can can change your game defensively in other ways. Yeah, and only one of these really guys like this comes out every single year in the draft. It's not like it's just bunches and bunches. So the Thunder are in a nice spot that they got Chet early on, and he just kind of fits like a glove on this team. But yeah, it felt like we were in a glut generation of just guards and guards and guards. But if you look out through NBA history, there's only been like two teams since the 80s to win a championship with their best player being 6'3 or under, and that was Isaiah Thomas and Steph Curry. The rest, it's all wings and bigs, so the Thunder, I think, are in a nice spot as they have the size for position where even though they don't have like the true like center size, just like girth, they have Shea, who's 6'6", Lou Dort's a fire, uh, he's a fire hydrant at 6'3", Josh Giddey's 6'8", J-Dub is 6'6", and now he's built like the Hulk, if you've seen his off-season videos. And then Chet is just like um, Mr. Fantastic from the Final Four, just stretchy arms everywhere. Yeah, and, you know, Thunder's got to... If if Holmgren is what he's purported to be, if if he's what we hope he'll be or even think he'll be, the Thunder's set out. There's not any question about that. And if these guys approach their their potential, then, you know, it's another golden age for the Thunder. But that stuff has to happen. You can't just say, well, you know, it's like football recruiting. You can't just say, you can't sign a bunch of five-star and say, well, we've got a great team. No, it's it's got to pan out. It's got to happen. But there's reason to like to like uh, Holmgren. We know Santa Clara's uh, year in the league has shown that. And Giddy, it's two years. And, of course, SGA's first team All-NBA. So, yeah, it's it's set up for the Thunder, no doubt about it. I'm glad we can end this on a positive note. Before we get out of here, Barry, do you have anything to plug before we end the podcast? Um, Thunder-related, probably not. I'm up to my earballs in uh, conference realignment and the kickoff of college football. Um, I do want to get into the Thunder three-point shooting. You know, forever we talked about – I'm going to write about that soon. We've been talking about – you know, seems like a decade. If Thunder needs more shooting, more shooting. Well, it turns out they got quite a bit of shooting right now. So, um, the Thunder suddenly got ahead of the curve. Definitely uh, something to look forward to. Can't wait to read that. Thanks, Barry, for coming on. And thank you all for listening to the Thunder Buddies podcast. Make sure to like, subscribe, comment, rate us five stars on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. At Thunderbud Pod on Twitter. And we'll be back again for more Thunder coverage on Tuesday.